What's up, Bandive crew? James here. And before we jump into this episode, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever wished there was a way to connect with me as well as other listeners in real time? I have the solution. I finally got around to making a Bandive Discord server, which is people have been asking me for years and I just wasn't listening. I wish I had done this sooner because I couldn't be happier with the results. It's been fantastic. And we would love to see you join us. We have discussions about the music business, gear, the podcast, and a general channel as well. You can join the discussion now by visiting bandhive.rocks slash discord. Again, that is bandhive.rocks slash discord. Welcome to episode 213 of the Bandhive Podcast. You're listening to the Bandhive Podcast, the number one online resource for DIY bands to learn about the music business and touring. If you want to turn your band into a lean, mean touring machine, you're in the right place. Now, let's get this show on the road. It is time for another episode of the Bandhive Podcast. My name is James Cross, and I help independent artists tour smart. Today, I have my very special friend, Matt Bacon, who speaks German with me on a pretty much weekly basis. How are you today, Matt? I'm good. Am I supposed to be talking like a radio voice while we do this? You can if you want to. I mean, you don't have to. That's up to you. We are going to be on the radio. You have a really good radio voice. This is very surreal. Just for people listening, I found out 90 seconds ago that this guy I talk to every week is on the radio. And the funny thing here is that the past two episodes we've done with you were also on the radio. And I read that intro the same way since like episode four. Maybe I was just hung over. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, Matt, welcome back. The third episode. Before we get into it, I want to shout out the past two episodes you've done. If people haven't heard those yet, or if you heard them, but it was, you know, two years ago and you want to re-listen, it's number 53, Getting Signed, The Most Common Types of Record Deals, Matt Bacon of Dropout Media. You can find that at bandhive.rocks slash 53. And number 106, one of the most powerful and misunderstood tools available to you, Matt Bacon of Dropout Media. And you can find that at bandhive.rocks slash 106. Now, fun fact, Matt and I are both incredibly disappointed in me today because 53 was the first episode, 106 is the second episode. And that is exactly double of 53. For those of you who aren't just doing math in your head automatically, 53 times 2 is 106. This episode is 213. You know what twice 106 is? 212. We missed it by that much. We would have doubled it again. We could have kept it going. And then we would have had to have you on episode like 424. We're probably not going to get there since the podcast is ending. But it would have been nice if we had had that number 212 episode right there. So everyone send the hate mail to uh, Bandhive PO Box 213 Southbury, Vermont. Yeah. Wait, which is this episode number? My PO Box is this episode number. (laughs) You made it. You made it to the PO Box number. That's cool. I literally just realized that. I was like, wait a second. That is too funny. Anyway, Matt, it is a pleasure to have you back here. We're going to talk about something else that we haven't talked about before in our past interviews. But before we get there, can you give us the elevator pitch of who you are and what you do? Sure. So basically, I am a music marketer and manager. A lot of you probably know me from my videos on Instagram at Bacon Spits, where I wave a cigar around and give band advice five times a day where it's really just like anything and everything about being in a band from, you know, touring to starting out to recording to whatever, just drawing from a lot of my experience, you know, again, managing artists like Escuela Grind and Autumn Kings and Capra, but also doing marketing for a ton of artists, everything from like Boy Genius and Mitski to Cannibal Corpse and Killswitch Engage, 
just all over the map, you know, primarily metal, but, you know, more and more pop stuff these days. When I was a teenager, I started a blog with my friend Heroin Dan, and then it sort of got out of hand. Like, I started, like, running a record label in high school and doing all this other stuff, and that was really cool. And then, you know, just by keeping saying yes, I ended up getting a PR job, dropped out of college for that. And then when that ended, I turned around and a lot of those clients were like, hey, can you keep giving us marketing advice? And then I did. And then it's only sort of evolved and gotten bigger from there. I have to shout out that a lot of times if I'm talking to a friend who's also in music, I'm like, oh, yeah, do you follow Matt Bacon? And they're like, I don't know who that is. I'm like, the cigar guy. Oh, yeah, I've seen him. I know his stuff. The brand absolutely works. I've had multiple female friends start dating dudes who casually mentioned my content and then they were like, I know him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a very dude-centric audience. Yeah, I mean, that, that comes with the metal world and I mean, unfortunately, the music world in general. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it's more of that, but anyway. That's too funny. But today we're here to talk about one of the things you mentioned, which is artist management. Because like you said, you have Esquilla Grand, you have Autumn Kings and you have Capra. You probably have others or had others at some point, but I know you're focusing on those three right now. What does managing artists entail for you and your team? Having headaches all of the time. (laughs) No, I mean, although that is a big piece of it. I think that every artist kind of needs something different out of a manager, right? Which is to say some artists just need like a business partner. Some artists need their hands held on a lot of things. Some artists need their hands held only on a few things. You know what I mean? And it really varies on an artist by artist basis, right? So there are certain things that I'm, you know, super deep in the weeds on for Escuela that I don't even have to worry about for Autumn Kings and vice versa. And also because every artist's career and journey, which is such a corny thing to say, but like every artist is looking at like a different path in their lives. And I think you just have to like accept that, you know, then you build around that, right? Because really... In sort of its idealized state, the way it works is, to use a really corporate metaphor, the artist is like the creative director, right? Like when you look at like really high level bands, like that's usually how it works is like the artist is the person creating the product and they're the founder. And so fundamentally, like they're in charge and the manager is just like an executive. Yeah, the manager is kind of like the big picture. They say, yeah, this is our goal. This is how we're going to get there. Now it's up to you to execute this. But again, you have to kind of figure that out on each level with different people. You know, I also think that there's a level of trust you need, right? If you're going to let someone really like have that. If you think about the level of power I have over like a Squela Grind, for example, just in terms of the fact that like I have power of attorney, I think I have all their social security numbers. I have all their passports. That's a lot you're giving to some dude. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Obviously, you know, I'm not going to f*** around with it, but like, you know, you're putting up all that stuff, plus you're trusting them with, you know, your career and your art and your everything that you pour all your time and energy and emotion and sadness into. And I think you really have to just treat that with respect. You have to treat the level of faith you're getting with a really high degree of respect and gratitude, you know, and realize that that's what this is. If they don't have that trust in you as a manager, then they're going to second guess decisions. They're not going to cooperate necessarily on the things that they should cooperate on. Yeah. And it's like, on some level, the artist needs to be pushing back because the manager cannot be the one changing up the brand and stuff. You know, the artist has to remain in the driver's seat. 
figuring out that balance is tricky. And again, it really varies artist to artist because I have artists I work with who just want to like sit in the studio and have someone negotiate publishing deals all day. Do you know what I mean? And then I have other artists who like, I'm basically the tour manager remotely. So it's really figuring out where is that going to lie in each particular case. And one thing I think is important to highlight there too, as we kind of pivot into from what you do to what artists should be doing for themselves if they don't have a manager, is that ultimately, even with a manager, the artist is still responsible for doing what they need to do. The manager doesn't just do everything that's not music. The artist is still responsible for helping with many things. I was going to say certain things, but realistically, it's many things. And it's also like the best manager only works with one band, but that's almost never the case. You know, and you have to kind of realize like, where do I sit in this whole thing? Yeah, and ultimately, at the levels that we're talking right now, that wouldn't be financially sustainable for a manager to only work with one artist. Maybe if you're managing Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, somebody like that, yeah, you can manage one artist and make a good living off of it. <laughs> Probably a great living. But if we're talking about independent artists or artists who have smaller label deals, you can't live off of that as a manager. You can't live off of that as a band either, realistically, which is unfortunate. But when it comes down to artists who don't have a team, which are the most important tasks you think that they should focus on that would traditionally be handled by a manager? I think that early on, you just want to be focusing on the community build. Everything else is going to come with time, you know? But really, if you're focusing on building community and you're able to like respond quickly to emails... Everything else is going to get easier from there. And it's funny because like that's like the big thing that really f***s people up is they like cannot answer emails quickly and they're just not invested in the community. But like the thing is, no one is going to do that community work for you. You know, as cool as your manager is, like you still need to be out there doing the thing. And your manager isn't going to have the connection to fans that you can foster. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, how do you lean into that, right? Because like with Escuela, like they're incredible at building community. And this is like part of why I like them. Like before I started managing them, you know, they were already the inspiration for countless bacon spits. And to me, it's just like, okay, I can build community for them. But like, no one is going to be as good at that as them being like goofy stoner kids making friends with their fans directly. Like that's something that will never go away. So here's the thing I think that people don't understand is like when you're good at the community build, if you have great art and then you have a strong community that you built up, it becomes a hell of a lot easier to book yourself on cool shows and get cool opportunities, right? Because like ultimately that's more what you're trying to do than anything else. And I feel like it's really just two pieces in the formula. The manager can't really alter those two pieces of the formula. I can't really teach someone how to be a community builder. I can give them some advice, but either you can do it or you can't. It's about having charisma, personality that's attractive to people, and being welcoming to people, making them feel like they fit in. That charisma piece is a big piece that people don't fully grasp. Some people just can do it, and some people just straight up can't. Like, there's some people you meet, and I say this in like a really affectionate way, there's some people you meet who just like are rock stars. Like, and I mean that in the sense of not like they have an ego or something, but like Will Ramos from Lorna Shore. When I first met him, right as they were popping off and was like giving him TikTok advice on Zoom, I could tell like, oh my God, this is a really charismatic, special person. And the guy Lorna Shore had before just did not have that. And like the music kind of really dramatically improved because they got Andrew in the band, who's like an amazing arranger or whatever. But like, he just 
pours out charisma. Like you want to be his friend. So like, that's like not something you can teach people. I can give a band advice on maybe, oh, that maybe this would make the live set better. Or maybe like doing this in your show, you know, that might be a move you could try that would make it better. But like, I feel like if that's not organically coming from the band, they're not going to do it or they're going to kind of half-ass it and then it's going to suck. Like I could go tell Escuela, it would be cool if, Tom grew out his hair, and then Tom and Chrissy did, like, synchronized windmill headbanging. But, like, (laughs) I mean, I think that would be cool. But, like, you know, that's their thing. You know, I can't really tell people that. You know what I mean? And it also, again, it has to be authentic to who they are. And, you know, and instead, their little interplay on stage is a lot more authentic and a lot cooler because they do it their way. And I feel like that's the game you're always playing is, like, the band has to be able to do it their way and in a way that makes sense to them. And, you know, and you make the choices you make, but that'll only take you so far, you know, because I work with Killswitch Engage pretty closely. And I remember being at a show with them and we're all hanging out backstage and the manager saying to the band, like, oh, you didn't play such and such a song. And the band would be like, oh, I don't know, it didn't seem like a fit on this tour. And it's just like, oh, like, yeah, the manager is the executive. He wasn't, like, choosing the set list for them. You know what I mean? And I think, like, that's kind of the thing to understand. Yeah, the manager is there to give them the opportunity to play, but the manager is not saying, this is how you will play. Yeah, exactly. And I totally agree with you on Charisma. Like, my co-host, who's also named Matt, Matt Hose versus Matt Bacon, I remember on Warp Tour, he would go out and sell sunblocks, sunglasses, all that kind of stuff in lines in the mornings. And he just had people cracking up. He was cracking jokes. He was just genuinely a fun person to be around. And that's why we became friends. Because I was like, hey, this guy is just funny. He's having a good time. I want to talk to him. And it's so important to have that kind of attitude. Because guess what? When it comes to after you play your set, you go over to the merch table. Whoever has that charisma in your band, they should be at the merch table. And it's probably the lead singer. Not always, but probably. You want that vibe, that welcoming, happy, charming vibe at the merch table. Because guess what? You're going to sell more merch. Exactly. Matt, I have the feeling that the answer for this question is going to be building community. But of all the areas of business that you see an unsigned artist ignore, what's the most egregious one that like, you can't ignore that? Why are you ignoring that? Stop being an idiot. The formula is very simple. It's, are you building community in a way that's sustainable and cool? And are you creating really great music? You know, what you'll see happen sometimes is people kind of hold their audience in disdain. I remember I managed this artist who was just like, oh, well, I can just crank out a record in two weeks. That that doesn't matter. You know, and it's like, maybe you can, but if it's not a great record, like you can't hold the audience in disdain. You have to always respect that the audience is the reason the whole thing exists. And so you have to always be like, how do I create the best possible product given everything going on for me? And I feel like you always need to be investing in creating the best possible content. I have a bacon's been coming out about this today where it's like a lot of times the content is good enough, but it's not awesome, right? Like that is to say, maybe you got some good live photos, but there's no color editing. Live photo with bad color editing pretty much always looks lame. Or the black and white cop-out. Yeah, I mean, the black and white cop-out is a better option, at least. Yeah. Because at least that way... It's better than bad color. Yeah, it doesn't look amateurish that way, right? Because so often it's just, that's kind of the thing, is it just looks kind of amateurish. And I feel like that's how we need you need to be kind of thinking about it moving forward, is like, I want everything about my musical presentation to be as pro as possible. Because really, what you need to be communicating to people is, you know, marketing with emotion. My music is going to make you feel a certain way, and when you go see it, it's either going to be a blast, or you're going to have some sort of emotionally transcendent moment, you know, it's going to be really sad and beautiful, and you're going to cry, or whatever, Right? 
And you need to understand, okay, so the end goal of my music is to make people feel this. How do I make sure that all of my content directs towards that? Right? Like with Escuela, I feel like broadly speaking, you could say a lot of it is about like feeling empowered, but also like having a good time. All of the social media content ties into feeling empowered and having a good time. The way you say that actually gives me an idea for like how artists can run advertising on social media. And I'm sure this is one of the things you do. Saying, hey, is like, do the holidays get you down because your family sucks? Well, here's a song about that. That's what I'm saying. Because it's like, you see this on TikTok all the time, right? Like people storytelling, Mm -hmm. you know, and using that as like the piece of content, right? Because like you'll see so often, like people will just be like, POV, your girlfriend just broke up with you. And then they do like a pop punk song that starts with that and then plays the riff. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, man, I woke up this morning and there was like this couple having a blowout argument in my street. Oh, no. Like breaking up. And all I could think was, man, I wish I was recording this to put a Midwest emo riff over it. (laughs) I love it. You know, because of TikTok, one of them would see it eventually and be like, that's embarrassing. God damn it, you know, (laughs) too much modern baseball. Well, that was an American football riff I just sang, actually. I apologize to the Midwestern emo gods. All I do is listen to Midwestern emo. Anyway, American football as an example, right? Again, like so much of that is just like being a millennial who has emotions. I would describe as like their core thing. But like, if you look at their content, like if you look at their live photos and if you look at their art and stuff, they're presenting in a way where there's like this heavy nostalgia factor kind of tied into like this very distinct being in the Midwest and in college and things are okay. And, you know, so there's that nostalgia thing that you see in all the marketing, but there's also this sense of like sadness and transcendence, which kind of like permeates the entire American football. And that's what people are investing in and are trying to figure out how to properly communicate, right? To circle back to your question, right? It's like, You need to go out and build community, but then people need to go and look at your Instagram after meeting you and be like, oh, that was a really cool person I just met. And then that Instagram needs to look cool and compelling because we've all like met a cool band and then like their social media presence kind of sucked. You're much more likely to see another post from that band before you see them live again. And it's also like that thing where like your memories get altered. There's definitely shows you and I have both been to that we think of as classic shows just because it was a legendary band who broke up and we got to see them before they broke up. But if you actually think about it, maybe that show wasn't that good. Yeah. Right? But it's about like building your own myth a little bit. My favorite show of all time is Pure Love, Birmingham, England, 2014. It was their farewell tour. Not their final show, but their final tour. And it was insane. I'm not going to go into detail. I talked about it on the podcast a bunch of times. But I will forever remember that show. And I'm sure you have moments exactly like that, Matt. Yeah, mine was watching Judas Priest with Phil Anselmo, Gall, and Attila for Mayhem, and Crowbar was there. That was this summer, right? Yeah, that was a couple years ago. Oh. But over the summer, I bumped into Phil, and we talked about it. It's like, oh, I was fucking sick watching Judas Priest with our boys. And I was like, hell yeah. (laughs) That's so sick. That's like a legendary memory for you to have. Yeah. Point being, you have to tell those stories. And I think that's where people fall down is they don't construct the narrative of them being exciting. They construct a narrative of them being a bar band. Yes. Which is right. Like, I think that if you look at the bands who are popping off and you look at their social media and you look at their marketing, it's almost always going to this is going to be the best time you ever have. And there's going to be a ton of cool people who are like you and you're going to jump on each other's heads and have a great time and meet your girlfriend and make out with a stranger. That is a great advertisement right there. I love it. But like, that's kind of like fundamentally what you want out of a hardcore show. Yeah. 
Like, I'm dead right. serious. Because I like humor and corny jokes, reading that as a description would actually get me to go to something. That's kind of like something that started to happen with the Squela grind in particular, because like they're kind of silly. Like we've kind of just leaned into like saying stuff like that in the press releases. I love it. Because that's what our fans are looking for. And it's funny and it works, right? Because there's just this piece of like, oh, yeah, we're being funded by big homo. And we're going to fucking crush posers under our new balances, right? <laughs> Which is like almost uh, like a nudge and a wink because like crazy Nazi people will be like, oh, we'll crush you under our iron boot. And because we're like the opposite of that, we're just like, just totally like poking fun at all this stuff, right? And like the people who know think that's really funny. And I just feel like you need to like, just communicate that very directly in the marketing. You don't have to be shy about it because you just have to ask yourself, why do I think people would come to my show? And if it's because you're going to have a great time and stage dive and meet your girlfriend and like party and smoke a bunch of menthol cigarettes, like you can literally just put that in a press release and say, I think we said this in an Escuela press release was like, hate mosh your friends. No, we did say hate mosh your friends, but we, I tried to say that and they said, no, we don't hate mosh. I was like, okay, but like, whatever. But something like that, you know, karate kick a stranger, whatever it is. Cause like people see that and they think it's funny, but it's also like everyone like fundamentally knows they're being marketed to. So you might as well like admit it. Like my clients in Boy Genius did this in a really clever way on their Spotify, like wrapped for their top fans, where they said, like, you're getting this. I guess you should probably tell your parents you're gay or something. <laughs> and, and, and that's not a direct quote, but it was something like that. And it was like, oh, well, that's kind of what it is. Like, they're not trying to be like, oh, well, we're not really marketing to you. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's just who they are. And I'm sure pretty much everyone who saw that video was told that their listening style is that of Burlington, Vermont. So shout out Burlington. You know what's really funny is I found out that my homegirl is the one who programmed that data set. But it was like an old data set or something. So it wasn't even like she messed up. Like it was like an old data set that wasn't supposed to be used for this purpose. And then they just used that data set. So everyone got the same like four towns. That's fantastic. I got Lincoln, UK, because apparently that's where everyone who listens to uh, electronic core and metalcore should be, even though my top genre is pop punk. But I mean, hey, I'll take it. My top genres were like rock, emo, atmospheric, black metal. That sounds incredibly accurate. <laughs> Knowing you, that is 100%. It's like Jimmy Buffett and... Boy Genius and Evil Feast. Yeah. <laughs> As we continue this discussion, if an artist wants to get management, doesn't have a manager, to be appealing... And I know it's going to be have good music and build a community that is cool and sustainable. But what else should an artist do if they want to have not just a manager, but a legitimate manager? Because there's a distinction there. We could go into the weeds on that for hours, probably. So I talked about this in a video yesterday. And I think what it kind of is, is like, let the industry come to you. You don't go to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's where people fall down is I think that anyone who kind of like who I don't know already, who I don't have a relationship with, who kind of asks me to be their manager, it's just by default, no. And even people I do kind of know who ask me to, like if you asked me to manage your band, it would be like, nah, you know? <laughs> so letting the industry come to you, I think is a very important attitude to have. Furthermore, I feel like most people want a manager because they think they need a manager to pop off. But legit managers will only really come when you're already popping off because a manager is generally working on a percentage. And... What happens with that is like 15% of zero is still zero. Yes. What am I doing? You know what I mean? And furthermore, I talk about this all the time that like a lot of people in the industry can amplify your demand, 
but no one can really, other than a producer, really can create demand. And the only way a producer can create demand is by helping you create a God tier record. You know, and I think everyone thinks that, oh, I'm just going to find a manager and they're going to put me on all the right shows and yada, yada, yada. But like, let's say you're a grindcore band and your dream is to go on tour with Esquela. No, because like they have to approve, the booking agent has to approve, etc., etc. You know what I mean? I can have input, you know, but also like I need to approve. I need to think it makes sense and it's cool. I have a very specific vision, right? You know, you as a new client are never going to be a higher priority than my existing biggest client, like straight up. There isn't like a plug in and play thing. There are artists who I'm sort of able to like plug into a system because they're the exact right thing, but they had to do a lot of work to get there. Like with my friends in Bonganator, right? Like I'm able to show up and like get them a label and get them an agent and get them on cool tours or whatever. But they'd already toured a bunch. They'd already done a lot of community building. They already had records that sounded really good and there was already demand. So I'm not managing them, but I was able to just help them out because right guy at the right time. You know what I mean? But they'd already done a lot of the work. And I think that's the thing is like, you're not just going from like 70 Instagram followers and one crappy demo out to like opening for... Fallout Boy. Yeah, I was going to say state champs, but... Close enough. (laughs) Different generations. I just think that's what people don't understand is like a manager is not some sort of make it or break it figure. He's just another guy on your team who can amplify the demand, but the product needs to be there. And the thing is, it also doesn't mean that you're suddenly dumb, right? Because like I've seen artists who were on the cut up who then put out a shitty product and then they just lost all their shots. And it's just like, oh, because that's ultimately all it is. Is the music really good? Right? Because like if the music is really good, suddenly other stuff will start to come with that, which is to say like with Autumn Kings, right? Who are kind of a smaller band in a lot of ways. But when they contacted me, first of all, they had a ton of Spotify monthlies because the music was great. So people were coming in organically because it was like being put on Spotify radio. And because the songs are so immaculately written, people will just listen in full. So it got put to more things. But also, like, people are genuinely excited about the music of that band because it's so good. You know, if you're able to, like, talk to people and, like, you do have a truly next level product, opportunities will just happen. But you have to focus on the community build, which they're very good at. And I think the other piece is it's very hard to understand if you have a next level product. Like, Jake from Autumn Kings is literally being mentored by Desmond Child. Like, that's how you know how good he is. You can never assume that your music is that good because you're always going to think your music is that good because of the endowment effect. I see that all the time. That actually ties into what I wanted to say earlier when you mentioned that my band would not be a good fit for you. I fully agree with that. We're not going to seek out a manager because we have self-awareness in that Taken Alive is not our primary focus. And if we want to work with somebody who's going to take us seriously as a manager, it needs to be our primary focus. All the interests need to be aligned. But we have the self-awareness that says, no, we all have other stuff going on. We're doing this because we want to make music. We're not trying to make this a full-time thing. And if you're going to work with a manager, you need to have that self-awareness of, hey, we're all going to put in the effort to match what this manager can do for us. Because if you're not going to put in that effort, you're not going to go anywhere. And you just touched on something really valuable. The amount a manager cares about you is directly reflective of how much you care about the project. Yes. Right, which is to say, if you're putting it on a back burner, that manager is also going to put it on the back burner because they know even if you're a legacy artist who like could do a box set and make a ton of money, which would be cool, if you're not involved, like the manager can't usually just put that together on their own because they're not going to have like all the photos and all the yada, 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 and the commentary, or they don't want to do all the work and then have you not approve it. I think that's really the thing is like, 
the manager buy-in is only as high as the artist buy-in. And you see a lot of people who just don't take it seriously, right? Like with a lot of my labels, we're just dropping artists left and right. Cause like I've ranted about this before. I think it's disgusting if you put together your record and then you expect a label to put in all the time and effort to say nothing of money, but just like their time to help promote and distribute your record. And then you don't do anything to push it. What the f are you doing? And that's like some local band stuff right there. That's what we see locals doing and complain about that. And then to see artists on labels or management teams not putting in the effort. It's like, what are you doing? You're throwing this opportunity away. It's so sad. Yeah, but you have to understand that different people are in different places in their life. They can't always do that. Yeah, it's just like, for a lot of people, that's the dream. And to see somebody squandering that dream because they just don't care anymore, they're so jaded by it, or they have stuff going on in their life, whatever it is, it sucks to see that. But I think it's important to realize that dream is not necessarily what you think it is. Yeah, and dreams change. You know, this is something like you learned in a lot of ways, right? When you were doing Warp Tour. It's like, okay, part of this is pop punk summer vacation, but also part of it is like showering in a room with a bunch of other dudes who also all had three hours of sleep and are all hungover and like actively throwing up while you're showering next to them. Thankfully, uh, I can say never had an experience that bad. No, you've never gotten puked out while you were showering? Bruh. No. Welcome to real grind touring. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's what I'm saying, right? You know, it's like, I think a lot of people get there and then they're just like, oh, this actually kind of blows. For me, it was like the first two years were great. And then the third year, I was just like, yeah, I don't like this anymore. It gets old. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of people just kind of get there and just hit a wall. It's tough. But I guess where I'm coming from is for the artists that have made it and they've been doing it for 30 years, to see them kind of just throw it away, knowing that in a lot of cases, some of them, like, they don't have a backup plan. Maybe they work at an auto shop or something is their day job. Because even major label bands, a lot of times, do have day jobs when they're not actively on cycle, you know, touring in the studio, whatever. To see that, it's, it's kind of sad because it's like, if you put in a little more effort, you could be doing music more. But because you don't, you're working at an auto shop. And there's nothing wrong with working at an auto shop, but it's incredibly different. Yeah, but I think you just have to appreciate, like, you know, different people have different life situations that emerge. Like, this is the other piece that I think people don't understand, is, like, the lifestyle you need to start as a touring musician, very specific, requires a very specific set of skills, a very specific set of people if you're a band. You need a good amount of startup income. It's really hard to go from like person paying rent to person on tour eight months out of the year making $20,000 a year. I don't think people realize how many of their favorite artists just like live at their parents' house. On some level, it makes sense. I almost did this at one point. There was a point in my life where it looked like I was just going to be on tour eight, nine months out of the year. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to live at my parents' house because like never home for more than two weeks. It makes no sense to pay rent. It's not sustainable otherwise. But like starting up that lifestyle is really hard. You have to basically start at the top if you have responsibilities like that. Like I have a friend who um, hadn't done, as far as I know, professional touring. Like he'd played shows with his own band and that kind of stuff. But more or less out of the blue, he got an offer to tour amphitheater tours and started touring. And that's fantastic. But I don't think he would have been able to go and do like independent tours because he has a wife. He has a house to pay for, like all that kind of stuff. You can't do that when you're making like a hundred bucks a night tops. And I think that's the thing people don't understand is like, okay, you want to do this? Now imagine losing two thirds of your income. But still having all the same bills. Yeah, exactly. What can you do then? It's not an easy shift. I would say, you know, Matt, on a much 
brighter note, it's almost 2024. This episode drops the day after Christmas or the second day of Christmas if you're in a country that celebrates two days of Christmas, like Germany. You know, there's 12 days of Christmas. Or 12 days of Christmas. Because there's like New Year's Eve, Christmas, Wrestling Day, Three Kings Day. Did you just rename Boxing Day? Did you just do that? <laughs> do you know who Baba Doug McKenzie are? No. It's like a Rick Moranis bit from the 80s. Anyway. Got it. I'm old. All of this to say, this comes out on Wrestling Day. Yes. Yes, indeed. Do you have tips for artists to start off 2024 strong? Go to shows. Love it. Straight up. It's actually funny. I'm remembering I did a live stream with a band I work with. We were talking about how they got all their opportunities and they were just like, yeah, we just kept going to shows and just kept showing up and we just kept showing up. And then because we kept showing up, other stuff happened. And then because other stuff happened, we kept being helpful. We kept being nice and da da da. And I think like if you can create a truly great product and spend time working on your songwriting, which should be your primary focus, and then spend the rest of your time just being helpful within your community and asking yourself, what skills do I have to benefit my community? Be that doing sound, be that doing lights, be that just photography, whatever. You know, Scotty Karate from Tank Crimes like used to sell buttons, right? Figure out like, what can you do to help people? You know, booking shows, that's a common one. So that you can meet more people and have those people go, oh, they're a good dude. F***ing Capra, Tyler had like a radio show for a bunch of years and he just put on a bunch of like his friends' bands. So it's like, okay, you're doing things to build the community constantly. That's it. And the more you build the community, if you can come back to people with a great product, because that's the other thing is like, if your band kind of sucks, people aren't going to help you. But if your band kills, everyone's going to be like, oh, and he's a nice guy. Yeah. Well, Matt, I think that is a perfect mic drop moment right there. Do you want to shout out that you are online at bacons.bits everywhere, as well as dropoutmedia.net. Anything else you'd like to tell the audience before we call it a day? Follow for more. DM for private consultation. If that joke didn't make sense, go watch my videos. Just five a day. <laughs> It'll make sense very quickly. All right. Well, Matt, man, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I hope you have an amazing Christmas and a happy new year. Hey, you. Yeah, you. With the headphones or the speakers. You've made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. While I still have you here, if you're not already in the Bandhive Facebook community, it would be great to see you there. We have over 600 like-minded musicians who are asking questions, sharing their experiences and advice, and much more. So if you want to improve your band's business, look no further than the Bandhive Facebook community. You can find it by searching for Bandhive on Facebook, that's B-A-N-D-H-I-V-E, or going to bandhive.rocks slash group. Again, that's bandhive.rocks slash group, and that will automatically redirect you to our Facebook community. I look forward to seeing you there soon.